For almost 40 years, Cyprus and its inhabitants have been divided. In 1974, the Turkish army invaded the northern third of the Mediterranean island in response to a coup d'etat by nationalists who wanted to annex the territory to Greece. 160,000 Greek Cypriots fled to the south, while a smaller number of Turkish Cypriots found refuge in the north. Despite this partition, a handful of Greek Cypriots choose to remain in their village, Rizokarpaso, which has since become an isolated enclave of Turkish Cypriot land. However, bicommunal initiatives are trying to build bridges between the two communities, helping them to restore their heritage together. Welcome to Meanings of Cohesion, a podcast exploring the impact of the EU's cohesion policy on our lives. In today's episode, the impact of the European Union's cohesion policy in Cyprus. My name is Alexander Damianorici. So, in this podcast, you listen to a reportage story from Rizzo Carpaso on Turkish Cypriot land, a conversation between me and the editor-in-chief of Babel International NGO, Quentin Aries, about other projects funded by the EU cohesion funds in Cyprus. Talk to you again after the reportage. How Cyprus is using its cultural heritage to heal divides by Chloe Emanuelidis and Yakovis Hadzistavru. For almost 40 years, Cyprus and its inhabitants have been divided. In 1974, the Turkish army invaded the northern third of the Mediterranean island in response to a coup d'etat by nationalists who wanted to annex the territory to Greece. 160,000 Greek Cypriots fled to the south, while a smaller number of Turkish Cypriots found refuge in the north. Despite this partition, a handful of Greek Cypriots chose to remain in their village, Rizo Karpaso, which has since become an isolated enclave on Turkish Cypriot land. However, bicommunal initiatives are trying to build bridges between the two communities, helping them to restore their heritage together. After passing through one of the checkpoints in the divided capital of Cyprus to reach the north of the island, the small Orthodox chapels left in ruins and dotted along the road bear witness to a dark and turbulent past. More than two hours away on this late April morning, the rising sun shines on the village of Rizo Karpaso, renamed Dikarpaz in Turkish, almost 49 years ago. Located in the remote Karpas Peninsula, it is home to a small community of Greek Cypriots under the control of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, self-proclaimed in 1983 and only recognized by Ankara. In the central square of the small village, the Church of Saint Sinesios faces a statue of Mustafa Kemal Atatürk, father of the Turkish Republic. The only cafe with a Greek sign welcomes regulars from the surrounding villages. Faithful Greek Cypriots, young and old, flock to the parish square to attend Sunday Mass 
under the watchful eye of the Turkish Republic of Northern Cyprus, or TRNC, authorities. Unlike the 160,000 members of the Greek community who fled to the south, this community chose to remain in the area, despite the presence of military forces after the Turkish invasion of 1974. Today, there are around 245 Greek Cypriots in Rizzo Carpasso, compared to 2,000 before the conflict. They live cut off from the rest of Cyprus, among the settlers from Turkey who have moved into the area en masse in recent years. I grew up around this village, and it's a joy for me to be able to attend church here. I also thank the Turkish Cypriot leaders who are irreproachable and tolerant of us. Tis father Christodulo after a mass, which on the occupied side never takes place without the approval of the TRNC authorities. For the clergyman, as for the rest of the landlocked community, the parish of St. Sinesios, named after a former bishop and protector of the Karpas region, helps to maintain the community spirit. The political situation has made it difficult for even the international community to gain access for many years, and the building built between the 11th and 12th centuries has suffered damage, mainly due to lack of maintenance. However, in 2020, around 500,000 euros were spent on the conservation of the iconostasis, the partition of icons that separates the nave from the shrine and the structure of the church. Preservation is done in the name of culture, which knows no limits or boundaries, and not for any particular community, preaches Father Christodulo. The work is expected to be completed by July 2023. The restoration effort is thanks to the Bicommunal Technical Committee for the Cultural Heritage of the Island, led by Sotos Kotoris, a Greek Cypriot, and Ali Tunjai, a Turkish Cypriot. The cultural heritage of Cyprus became the collateral damage during the division of the island in 1974. Even today, in the occupied northern part, many damaged cultural sites can be seen. Turkish forces have used historical and religious buildings as military bases and a large number of artworks and artifacts have also been sold on the black market out of sight in the south and in full knowledge of the Turkish authorities in the north. In Cyprus there are two versions of history. For Greek Cypriots the events of 1974 and for Turkish Cypriots the events of 1963 which saw violent intercommunal tensions that caused 134 deaths and the intervention of the Blue Helmets. Since then, the monuments have suffered. Our mandate without politicizing the issue is to say that these buildings are for future generations, for humanity and for everyone, says Ali Tunjai, who is 100 kilometers away, drinking a coffee in the Cypriot capital with his colleague Sotos Ktoris. One of the major achievements of this committee is that we have abandoned the blame game between the two communities regarding the past. We are trying to depoliticize the issue in order to build bridges, Katoris adds. Since its creation in 2008, following an agreement between the leaders of the two communities, the committee has received more than 20 million euros in the framework of the European Union's cohesion policy and its aid program, for the Turkish Cypriot community. For Sotos Ktoris, every cultural imprint left on the island 
by all the civilizations and people that have passed through Cyprus must be taken into consideration. We have decided that the monument of every civilization are part of our common shared heritage, he summarizes between sips of coffee. Like St. Sinesios, 122 sites across the island have been restored or are being restored with the support of the United Nations Development Programme. In the south of the island, the port city of Larnaca is full of buildings dating from the Ottoman period. Tunçarj Bagiskan, who lives in the north, explores for the first time the soon-to-be-completed renovation of the 18th-century Zuhari Teke Mosque complex. Along with the Hala Sultan Teke and the Turabi Teke, this site was one of the three main places of worship for the Turkish Cypriot community in Larnaca before 1974. I'm quite pleased with the work, knowing that before there was a car park, that family settled there and hung up their laundry, says the 75-year-old archaeologist. Due to the war and the displacement of the population, the Zuhuri Teke no longer received any visitors, he explains. As he continues his inspection of the finished work, he sighs. Before the war, the representatives of the two religions, the Orthodox priest and the Imam, used to meet. But this connection has been broken. It's a shame. According to Tansharsh Bagiskan, who is writing a book on the Ottoman monuments of Cyprus in his spare time, the division of the island has also had enormous consequences for archaeological excavations in the north. For a while, foreign archaeologists were banned from the island. The island's cultural heritage would have been much better off if we had had a helping hand from the foreigners, says Bagishkan, who praises the committee's work but has no illusions. Even today, there's no communication between the antiquities departments on each side of the island. They need to unite, but I have no hope of this happening any time in the near future. In a tree and flower lined street in Rizzo Carpasso, a few meters from the restored church after Mass, Demetrius Geogales, 44, has other things on his mind. He's preparing a memorial for his father, who died in 2005. In the garden of his small and friendly family home, Demetrius lives alone, surrounded by portraits of his many relatives hanging on his walls. After the 1974 war, my parents decided to stay, and they did the right thing. I will never leave this place. I'll stay until the end, if all goes well, says this farmer with conviction. There's no future here for young people. There's no work. And unfortunately, the Republic of Cyprus hasn't increased the allowance for the landlocked community, which has been stuck at 370 euros for years, he laments. However, the precarious situation has not prevented a number of young people living in the areas controlled by the Republic of Cyprus from moving to the landlocked enclave. This is the case of Kriaki Dimitrio, 26, a housewife who decided to join her partner from Rizzo Carpasso when she was 18. Together, they run a farm and have three children. To help with their financial difficulties, every Wednesday, the couple, like other landlocked people, receive food provided by the UN. At first, it was hard to live here. We're not allowed to celebrate national holidays. We're not allowed to display our flags. But as time goes by, we're getting used to it, says Kriaki with her daughter in her arms. We don't have any problems with the Turks. Since the opening of the checkpoints in 2003, the tension has decreased, 
compared to what it was like for my parents who lived through the curfew, she explains. The opening of checkpoints along the North-South Green Line has brought the two communities on the island closer together after 30 years of being isolated from one another. In Nicosia, in the buffer zone controlled by the United Nations, which two decades later still separates the capital in two, Andromachi Sofocleos, 34, and Kamal Beykali, 47, meet at their usual meeting point, in the middle of the Blue Helmets. They are co-founders of Unite Cyprus Now, or UCN, a bicommunal platform which has been campaigning for the reunification of the island since 2017. For these activists, the European aid program for the Turkish Cypriot community and the preservation of Cyprus' cultural heritage are of paramount importance for the rapprochement of the two parties. The EU's support is essential, but its political perspective is absent, Andromachi bemoans. Support for the Turkish Cypriot community is one of the most promising resources, but it must be strengthened to reach as many Turkish Cypriots as possible, explains the political analyst. Supporting Turkish Cypriots and their development also means preparing them for the reunification of the island, stresses Kemal, who, like his colleague, has always lived in a country divided by the Green Line. As hope sprang up on the island, UCN was founded on the streets, to urge the then-leaders of both sides, Mustafa Akinci and Nikos Anastasiades, to take decisive action at the 2017 reunification talks in Kranz Montana, Switzerland. But the UN-sponsored talks stalled and have been at a standstill for six years now. Andromachi sees this stagnation as fertile ground for nationalist tendencies. Kemal, who, when he is not an activist, dances the tango, the art of moving gracefully together in the same direction, notes with regret the succession of missteps in this process. After the failure in Kranz Montana, things started to deteriorate. We failed to keep Akinci in power, a supporter of reconciliation with the Greek Cypriots. The North and Turkey have radically changed their approach since the election of Ersin Tata in 2020. Backed by Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan, the leader no longer wants to hear about the federal solution supported by the UN and the EU. He's now putting a two-state scenario on the negotiating table, which would de facto recognize the sovereignty of the TRNC. On the other side of the Green Line, the President of the Republic of Cyprus, Nikos Christodoulides, elected last February, was more rigid than his opponents on the issue of resuming talks during his election campaign. While he wants to relaunch the talks after the next Turkish presidential election in May and calls on the EU to play a more active role, his candidacy for the head of the Republic of Cyprus has been supported by parties that want a different model than a federation. We have not seen any sign of openness to Turkish Cypriots from him, Andromachi adds in front of the barbed wire, of the buffer zone. In his view, since the failure of the negotiations, things have become very difficult for intercultural bicommunal activities because there is not enough support. We have reached a stage where we need political initiatives from those who want a solution, but the current climate is not favorable. As if to ward off bad luck, the two activists attend the premiere of a documentary on the checkpoints, which on this day marks the 20th anniversary of their opening. 20 years ago, we mustn't forget that it was impossible to cross from one side to the other. 
in Rizzo Carpasso, for the oldest members of the village, the question of cohabitation remains a very thorny issue. The memory is still vivid, and the tension still palpable today. 33-year-old Eleni Sinainu, an energetic young woman with black hair, runs the Greek Cypriot cafe opposite Saint Sinesios, along with her father, Yosef. Between two conversations in Turkish, she serves the customers and a few curious tourists who venture in with her seven-year-old daughter, Melina, clinging to her neck. Eleni refuses to be called a resistance fighter, but recalls the teachers who used to come from the Republic of Cyprus in the south to teach them on the sly in 2003 and 2004, and the Turkish Cypriots who used to throw stones at her when she was little. But they grew up together in Rizzo Carpasso, and now Melina's babysitter is Turkish, she adds. A small victory on occupied ground. Hi, Quentin. It's good to have you back on Meanings of Cohesion. It's good to be back. And hi, Alex. The last time we met, we were discussing Northern Ireland. In this episode of Meanings of Cohesion, we travel to a completely different region and country, which is Cyprus. So as in the previous episode, I'd really ask you to help us understand what other type of projects or activities EU Cohesion Funds is fostering, are fostering in Cyprus. Yes, so we are basically on the other side of Europe now, in a different time zone. Cyprus is an island, as we just listened to it, this is a divided island, so this is like a lot of political tensions, but regardless of what's happening on both sides of the green line between the Turkish and the Cyprus community, we can mention a lot of European projects and funded by the European cohesion policy, we can be super interesting. Like this really goes into again on how you know we can empower uh, like local communities uh, to basically like be economically active and to be socially inclusive. And in goes, for example, I don't know, like helping researchers to fund like research projects or, you know, we can build like uh, facilities for Cyprus startups actually to get ongoing and even to have a footprint into the Cyprus market or even the European market or even also how you know innovate cities. Fantastic. So give us some more concrete idea. Is there any specific project which is, in your opinion, we should talk about today? Yeah, I think it's something really we see in a lot of European cities now is like, for example, like in Nicosia or in Limassol, which are like one of the two biggest uh, cities in the uh, Republic of Cyprus. Let's maybe go back to Limassol. Like they are just actually finished to refurnish like the renovation of the city center. So like the city center was really built as a touristic hotspot. So in case you go to Limassol, you'll see like there is a huge like beachfront view and so on and so forth. However, right now it is like you need actually your car to go everywhere. And maybe, you know, especially in Cyprus now, like with the heat waves and the fires and the droughts, like there is a problem of sustainability and even, you know, how you adapt to climate change. So what I think very interesting projects here is just like how when you use EU cohesion policy money to renovate your city center or maybe to renovate any public facilities, how you try to embed actually from the design of those projects, how you know like climate change because like it's going to have an impact. Concrete is hot. How you know you build more trees, how you know you reinvent the cities and new towns. So basically like you can face a heat wave or you can face a drought. So I think like those are super relevant projects because we are living in a world that right now 
like is going to face climate change and its consequences. So I thought it was very interesting to explore those issues. Brilliant. As usual, thanks a lot for your insights. And we will catch up in the next episode of Meanings of Cohesion. Thank you. And see you soon. And this is it for this episode of Meanings of Cohesion, a podcast exploring the impact of the EU's cohesion policy on our lives. This podcast is part of Europod, a podcast network home to captivating stories from across Europe and quality information on the most pressing issues of our time. Meanings of Cohesion is a collaboration between Europod and Arab.eu, which publishes long-form reportage stories from across Europe in English, French and Italian. The reportage story you listened to was published on Arab.eu, where you can also find beautiful accompanying shots. This podcast is produced as part of Utopia, a project financed by the European Commission, which aims at raising awareness of the concrete benefits offered by cohesion policy in Europe. Utopia is a project led by the Assembly of the Regions and Bubble International, an NGO based in Paris. The producer, host and scriptwriter of this podcast is me, Alexander Damiano Ricci. Reportage stories are read and brought to you by Gail Rego. Mixing, editing and mastering by Jeremy Bocquet. Original soundtrack by Thomas Kosberg. 